0: So you're picking up Wi-Fi outside of K Jewelers. Is that right? Yeah, I did not go to Jared. (laughs) What's their jingle? Every kiss begins with K? Yeah, there we go. So maybe we'll say every kilobyte upload begins with K?
1: Welcome.
0: All right, welcome back to another
2: episode of Touchpoint. That's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and this is episode number 125. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. It seems like just yesterday we recorded an
0: episode (laughs) of the podcast. (laughs) seems like just yesterday we tried to record this episode of the podcast. (laughs) Oh, that's an inside uh, story. But yes, yes. um, when this podcast airs, you will be on vacation, won't you? I will. I'll be at the beach on my trek across America.
2: This is good. We're getting a couple of them done, and that's how we take a break. Appreciate the support. Thank you for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. If you have not already, be sure to rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. And touchpoint.health is where you can find out not only more about this show and all the links from the show notes, but all the other shows and show hosts that are on the network. Before we go too much further, let's take just a quick pause,
1: and uh, we'll be right back. Using powerful AI-driven algorithms, Loyal's Guide helps patients along every step of their journey, from choosing a doctor and finding the nearest location... To signing up for an event or clinical trial whether you are using guides chatbot live chat or the powerful combination of both loyal's engaging platform integrates seamlessly into your system maximizes efficiency and improves patients digital experience to learn more or schedule a demo visit them online at loyalhealth.com forward demo that is loyalhealth.com Forward slash demo.
0: Sareed, so I'm excited to jump in today to our episode. We've talked about health records and how to use health records in many different facets before in other podcasts, but the reason why it sprung to mind as a topic to record today is because in my newsfeed, I found this article that Sutter Health is being sued for allegedly sharing patients' health data with Facebook and Google. Uh oh. Yeah, and we've heard this before. I think you and I have talked about it before. There have been a couple of lawsuits that have been levied against hospitals for the use of patient data. And not surprisingly, many of them are coming from California because California has put in that very strict Privacy Act. Go read the
2: article for yourself, but it's not like they just uh, packaged up a, a database on a thumb drive and, like, walked it over to Facebook, right? I mean, it's, it's not exactly what happened. But I do think it's becoming harder to delineate what is a health record or what is health information. And again, we'll kind of get into some of that.
0: But this—the the only reason this is uh, important is because it's valuable. Yeah, health records are extremely valuable. In fact, I found another article that actually shared the cost breakdowns of a health record as opposed to... Other types of information about people on the dark web. The dark web. We continue to hear a
2: lot about the dark web. I've never been on the dark web myself. But yeah, that is interesting, right? Because the dark web has become quite the marketplace. For literally anything, it's a little bit scary. And uh, again, more on that later. But you know, I think you pulled some information here. And it's just kind of to set you know a frame of reference. Social security numbers, I guess they're really not that important anymore. Or they're pretty easy to come by. Because...
0: You can only get like a dollar per social security number. That's kind of sad to think that the social security number is only valued at a dollar. Credit card information sells for about a hundred bucks on the dark web, you know, give or take. I think uh, Visa probably sells for a higher price than MasterCard. What about Discover? Where does that fall? Discover is probably like 25 bucks. <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: yeah. And they're just like, no, never mind. We don't want it. Or Diners Club. What about Diners Club? Is that still a thing? <laughs> And again, you know, just to kind of paint the picture here, a patient record can sell for for up to a thousand bucks. Initially, when you think about like, oh, a thousand dollars, that's not like that much money. But when you put it in context, because again, people are not buying one, two, five, ten of these, it's large
0: databases, probably hijacked from hospitals through hacking. You've heard about these, you know, we even had a, a couple episodes of the other, the Connected Hospital podcast dedicated to the cybersecurity threats around hacking hospital information. But patient records contain so much information in them. They include not only all your health information, but date of birth, credit card information, social security numbers, addresses, and email. So not only is it a large amount of data, but there's one other reason, I think, why it commands such a higher price on the dark web. And that's because it's, I would call it, a less volatile record, or maybe a less fungible record, if you want to use that term.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, it's not going
0: to change or
2: evolve over time, right? Like maybe uh, like a credit card number would be, you know, you get hacked or you lose a credit card. You just get a new one. It's pretty easy to, to shut one off and turn a new one on. And it's an inconvenience, but it's not like the worst thing in the world. Social security numbers, a little more problematic, obviously. But when you get into like a full health record, that that becomes really hard. Like you can't, I'm not going to have asthma anymore. So let's just turn that off and turn on a new, no, I, I, I kid, but, but right. I mean, you, you can't, it's not going to change as much over time.
0: Because of that on the dark web and not that we're, you know, promoting going out on the dark web and buying things, but it has such a high price, it has such a high value. But if you flip the equation a little bit and think about us as people working within a health system and more specifically, those of us working within digital marketing, we talk a lot about how. The health record is very important as well because that allows us to do things like personalized care. It allows us to personalize communication. It allows us to actually understand all of the potentiality of customers within our marketplace. It
2: does. And so if you think about, you know, we're working in a digital world now in a data-fueled environment. You know, we have to be cognizant about the data that we're using and how we're using it. And ultimately, you know, the easy answer, and we, we've
0: heard this term before, but is, is using de-identified data. Aha, uh-huh. de-identified data. We have heard that term a lot before, Reed, and we may not actually know exactly what that is. And I didn't turn to Wikipedia this time. I actually looked at hhs.gov. For a definition, I found it on a website that's called, here's the title of the webpage, guidance regarding methods for de-identification of protected health information in accordance with the health insurance portability and accountability HIPAA privacy rule. Whew. That's a mouthful, right? Yeah, that's a lot of keywords. An SEO strategist wrote that <laughs> <headline>. <laughs> Obviously. <I'm pretty> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um... But in that, on that page, it actually defines what is protected data. And it's mostly based on HIPAA, but it has some nuances. So it, they go into a lot of detail
2: here, but the definition is the relationship with the health information is, is what's fundamental. Identifying information alone, such as the name, address, phone number, is not necessarily PHI. Uh, you know, For instance, what they're talking about, Anything that's publicly accessible data, like that you would find in a phone book, is not PHI because it's not related to health. But if that information was listed alongside health conditions, then that information does then become PHI and, you know, can help identification to the individual, you know, in the clinic and what they did and didn't do and all that kind of stuff. Then, then
0: certainly, you know, that all then becomes PHI. So it's somewhat contextual, right? I'm not sure if I should feel... Comforted by the fact that they used a phone book as part of their metaphor here, but because mm-hmm. um, are those things existing anymore? Maybe they should update that a little bit. And, you know, it's available on a Facebook record or Foursquare. <laughs> Yelp. If we
2: can find your name on you know LinkedIn, then it's it's not PHI.
0: So true. Anyway, HIPAA also outlines what covered entities are that are covered by this rule. And there's three of them they outline on this page. The first is a healthcare provider that conducts certain standard administrative and financial transactions in electronic form. So, you know, like every hospital that has like an EMR or an EHR. The second is a healthcare clearinghouse. So, healthcare clearinghouse gets a little bit vague in the definition Assumptively that that's probably like epic as a platform maybe it's even right. a CRM mm. perhaps and the third protected entity or covered entity is a health plan and that kind of makes sense
2: to me. The process of de-identification by which the identification or identifiers are removed from the health information is what ultimately mitigates the risk to individuals and thereby supports the secondary use of data, for comparative, effectiveness studies, policy assessment, life science research, assumptively what we're doing in marketing and things like that. Although it doesn't call out
0: marketing specifically, yeah, it refers to it as other endeavors. <laughs> that's kind of a vague, <laughs> a vague statement there. Other things that you want to do with the
2: data. I think that's what also my CFO used to call it was other endeavors. <laughs>
0: so basically what they do is they strip out phi information and collect these massive databases and you know clearly what we do what we can do with that from a marketing perspective or even from a life uh, sciences research or whatever is we could pull this large data sets together and start to get a good sense of let's say there's a high prevalence of diabetes within a market or there's an, a high number of people that are showing up with this particular condition in this health system you know that's the assumption here is that we could use that data de-identified it's not sharing their individual information their name their social security number mm-hmm. what have you so that's the identification right It is. And I will say, just as a side note here,
2: when we talk about HIPAA and things like that, you've got to understand the market you're in in, and what you're doing and how you're doing it, right? Because certain things that could be considered PHI or, or HIPAA related breaches in a small town may not be in a big town and vice versa and some of that kind of stuff. So it's not real black and white. You know, it's dynamic based on your market conditions. You know, if you were in a little bitty town and you said something about, There's a lady, she was in here, she's pregnant with triplets. There's a pretty good chance there's only one person in town that's (laughs) pregnant with triplets, right? So people would Uh then know who you're talking about. And if you were in an ER in Dallas and said that, or in Houston... Probably not quite as obvious on who you're talking about. So, again, that's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it. But but understand, too, that there is a component to this that you do have to understand, you know,
0: the market conditions uh, that, that are in place where you are participating. Now, a little bit later in this episode, we're going to have a really good interview with someone that is used to using de-identified data, and uh, he he shows a great story about that. After the break, though, why don't we come back and talk a little bit about some studies that were done about the evolving role of audience and data using to identify your audiences, as well as this whole concept of de-identification, if it actually means something. But let's do that right after this break.
1: You care about simplifying the way your healthcare organization does business, and so do we. At Scorpion, our mission is to empower our clients to focus on things that really matter by giving them a simple, powerful, effective suite of marketing solutions for their healthcare digital presence. To learn more, visit us online at scorpion.co.
2: All right, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, PHI and HIPAA and all those kind of things. I thought maybe you know, it'd be great to pivot to one of these articles that you found, actually it's a study that you found, just kind of on the evolving role of, of audience insight and kind of the uh, outlook on data. And matter of fact, the study itself, the Outlook for Data 2019, a snapshot in the evolving role of audience insight. So this research from the IAB Data Center of excellence. And this came out just a couple of um, months ago.
0: IAB is, by the way, stands for the internet architecture board. For those of you who don't know, but they did a study about cross channel data usage and how it's being used to identify audience insights. So there are a couple of things here that we wanted to highlight from this. Really the whole point here is to, to use this data, use data about our audiences to help understand and improve customer experiences. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that they found in the study is that of the people they actually studied here, they said that through measurement and attribution, 57.3% of people were actually using cross-channel data to do measurement and attribution. And audience identification is another 52.4%. So that's why it's critical for us to get all of this customer data Because it helps the two fundamental things that we're trying to do, understand our customers better and measure the effectiveness of what we do against them, right? Absolutely. The problem we run into, obviously,
2: are reasons we can't do that. And so they outline that again in this as well, but they call it threats to using the data. 52.8% cited government regulations. So a lot of what we talked about for the break. That's a pretty common one, I would assume. It's a you know legal reason.
0: I was really trying to figure out exactly what was behind that government regulation or threat of regulation. I guess GDPR played a role in this, mm-hmm. but it could it also be when you're in a regulated industry? That's the people they were talking to because certainly healthcare is not the only industry that's regulated. Financial services are, pharmaceutical services are. So, mm-hmm. thirty four almost thirty
2: five percent cited uh, siloed data structures in their organizations. I'm surprised that
0: wasn't higher. Yeah, siloed seems to be the one that, for me, is top of the
2: list. 33% cited difficulty improving ROI. Did they only talk to hospital people? This seems like a... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then finally, just under 30% cited a lack of internal experience. So yeah, I mean, again, we've talked about that too, right? Is, you know, we need to be hiring more data scientists and people that understand how to use some of the Marcom tools that we've we've cited. And this is this is an example of that. Proving ROI, siloed data, and
0: regulations. That pretty much hits it all. It does. And, you know, one of the things they pointed out in the study is that there is a sort of a a push into the marketplace of all these third-party companies that are basically designed to take in all of this data and structure it and bring it back to you, to your organization, in a way that you can actually be actionable against it. Now, in healthcare, we obviously think of that as like a CRM is a good use case of that, right? They pull in uh, medical data. They pull in maybe all your data from your EMR. They give that back to you as marketing tactics. But in other industries too, they're doing this as well. So I I think that this reflects very closely to what our industry is going through. But the challenge of this, the challenge of these third-party companies coming in is that while they're really good at massaging this data, they charge a pretty penny for doing it, don't they? Yeah, and and they do reference that in here about data costs continuing to rise. Just
2: shy of 70% said their organizations increased spending on data and related services. I'm not sure what related services means. But anyway, in 2018, relative to the prior year, while over three-fourths, 78.2%, anticipate investing even more. So again, people are continuing
0: uh, to invest more and more. So we will continue to see that cost rise. Okay, so here's the conundrum that we're facing then. There's an increasing importance to use data to make better decisions about our audiences, ben- better marketing decisions. And yet, there is we are struggling internally because of data silos, because of government regulations, because of ROI. So there's a heavier reliance on outside companies to help broker our data and actually structure it in a way that we can actually act on it. And that's causing more financial burden on our industries. We're kind of in a weird spot here. Data is important, yet it's it, it's getting costlier and costlier to broker, and we don't
2: know what to do with it. Exactly. Where where do you feel like you
0: know this goes from here? Because it is very vendor heavy at this point. I, you know, I see health systems are starting to spend more and more time thinking about how do we structure our data in a way internally. And when I say internally, I put quotes around that because they're probably using third-party tools, but they're doing it in a way where they can actually get that access to that data. So one of the things that we're doing in our health system is we're looking at a master data management approach where we're trying to create single sources of truth of data around our customers, around our different audiences. Now, that project in and of itself is taking a long time to roll out because we have to be nuanced across the organization. You know, We've talked about this before – data structures for marketing is a lot different than data structures for clinical. And it's a lot different than the data structures for operations. We have to develop that kind of a standard data definition. And that takes a long while to get there. And that can evolve your master data management strategy to become very complex and nuanced. And then couple that with the fact that there's multiple audiences that we serve. Uh, Obviously we're all focusing on the customer or the patient first, But what about we extend that to some of those other audiences that we serve? I think that becomes an incredible challenge for us. Yeah, absolutely. We've
2: talked about this a bunch. I believe it was the episode prior to this, maybe. People's issues, you know, you sort of like the decreasing use in Facebook, right? And one of those big concerns was the privacy piece. You know, we're, we're wanting more and more data from people. Uh, I guess we're pulling that from different places. Will we continue to have access to that? I mean, I guess we will, right I mean that's the reality of it is you almost can't function in today's world without giving up a lot of information
0: about yourself. but I just I, I wonder I wonder about that privacy piece You said that in the last episode, right? You were saying that the illusion of privacy is is just that an illusion, right You know, in this day and age, we are known every individual that actually connects to the internet and does some kind of internet transaction, whatever it may be, basically that data is being captured and it's being captured in a way that other people can act on it and react to that. And that's why going back to the top of the show, you know, there's a sensitivity going on now, not only in California, in Europe, obviously we heard about GDPR. Are you being good stewards of my health data? is de-identified data really the right approach for us as health systems to use to help us understand our audiences better? Let me ask
2: you this. So let's say we're the best in the world, you and I, at (laughs) de-identifying data. (laughs) Like that's a thing. We're just data de-identifiers. We're like guns for hire. You know, we just like go around and de-identify stuff for people.
0: We delete a lot of
2: Excel spreadsheet (laughs) rows, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Have people stop using cloud services. But is it
0: really de-identified? Is it really protected? Is that really a thing? Well, it depends on how you look at it and how you want to define de-identified. Now, if we go back to the original definition that HHS created about de-identification, probably technically it's there, but, read not to cast a ominous note on the future state, but there was a study that was done recently. Researchers from the U.S. and China, they collaborated on a project to re-identify users in a national de-identified data set. Wow. And you know what happened? They did it. They did it. <laughs> they used machine learning and AI oh, boy. to re-identify data. There's those two words again. Yep. They used data from 14,451 individuals. It's oddly specific <laughs> that were included in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys from uh, a couple of years 20, 2003 to 2004, and then 2005 and 2000 to 2006, all of which have been stripped of geographic and protected health information. That is an oddly specific number,
2: uh, certainly. <laughs> um, but this is what they found. So here, here's what uh, the researcher had to say. Uh, if you strip all the identifying information, it doesn't protect you as much as you think. That's not good. Someone else can come back and put it all back together if they have the right kind of information. In principle, if you could imagine Facebook gathering step data from the app on your smartphone then buying healthcare data from another company and matching the two. Now, you have health data that's matched to names. They could either start selling advertising based on that,
0: or they could sell the data to someone else. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. That's kind of frightening if you think about that, right? Because we're leaving such a vast data footprint that wherever you go, People can ultimately track that back to you. And then AI and machine learning can piece that all together. And now suddenly, de identified data is re identified. It's a myth. It, just like you said about privacy, de identified data sounds like an illusion.
2: I think it probably is. And I think a lot of this is born out of convenience. 'Cause if you think about it, when we go across the internet and we do things and sign up for things and log into things, well, what's the easiest thing to do, right? Log in with Facebook or log in with Google or whatever, you know, you hit those little buttons versus like setting up a new account with an email address. You know, if you if you think about using activity trackers or something like that. And, you know, you share that stuff on Facebook, you know, after you went for the bike ride or the run or whatever all this stuff is is way
0: more connected than you than you probably realize it is that's kind of interesting because you know we hear about all these concerns about privacy and about not wanting to opt out of things yet at the same time we're opting into so many things as individuals as consumers in the marketplace do we have a slanted take on what privacy actually is is this sort of like don quixote going after the the windmills in that we're just trying to go after something that we can never actually go after? I don't know. That's a
2: question for somebody probably smarter than me. I don't know what where we go with this. But they do talk about that this particular study, uh, what it's suggesting is that current practices for de-identification, at least of physical activity data, may be insufficient to ensure privacy. It, it also has important policy implications because it appears to slow the need for de-identification that aggregates, again, that physical activity data of multiple individuals to ensure privacy for single individuals. So what does that mean? Like we got to have more of it to have less of it?
0: I think what it's saying is, is that we got to modify the definition of protected data or protected health information now. Uh, no surprise, right? We've had uh, um, someone on our on our show about maybe half a year ago talking about how HIPAA needs to change. Well, maybe our definition of de-identified data needs to change. Now maybe we have to do is strip out physical activity data. Maybe there's some other data elements too in order for us to stay standard and, and keep up with uh, privacy concerns.
2: I think you're probably right. Um, well, this is why I don't exercise. So, <laughs> this is just too dangerous. It's dangerous for your health. Is it's dangerous, dangerous for your privacy. There's a number of reasons not
0: to exercise. <laughs> so true. So true. What's interesting, though, even though there is this concern about privacy, we in health systems, we are actually at least purportedly are trying to use this data for some good action. The interview that we're going to listen to in just a few minutes here from Jeremy Mittler, he's with a company called Crosstix. I met up with him at the local conference, and you know him as well. He is very, very savvy about de-identified data. He's going to talk about the origin of how this rule came about. And he's also going to talk about some of the positive applications of using de-identified data to help health systems today to make better healthcare decisions. So why don't we take a moment here, we'll take a little brief pause, and then after the break, we'll hear the interview between me and Jeremy.
1: Are you struggling with online reputation management? Binary Health Analytics provides healthcare systems, hospitals, and physician practices a complete view into managing patient feedback from online ratings and reviews and especially surveys. It continuously mines feedback for sediment uncovering timely and actionable insights. Its management tools help turn these insights into an opportunity to increase patient engagement, manage reputation, and improve patient experience. To learn more about binary health analytics, visit Binary Fountain Online at binaryfountain.com. Com. That is BinaryFountain.com.
0: All right. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of talking with someone I just recently met uh, and got to know and learned a little bit more about what he, his background is and what he's been doing. And I'm excited to share some of his thoughts and insights with him today in the interview. And that's Jeremy Mittler. Jeremy, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Chris. This is uh, it's exciting. I, as I've said, I've listened to you guys for a while on the podcast and uh, very excited to be here.
0: You and I have gotten to know each other just recently, but many people in our audience may not know a little bit about you. So why don't we first start with you sharing a little bit about your background?
3: So I lead a team at Crossix. I'm from a company called Crossix Solutions. Uh, My team is called Industry Solutions. And for those not familiar with Crossix, we are really the market leader in healthcare in terms of measuring, optimizing, and helping marketers target better with more precision their marketing campaigns We've got a long history in the pharmaceutical industry and have really recently, over the last couple of years, expanded into the hospital marketing world, working with different health systems and so on. It's been an opportunity to learn about how things are done here uh, in this industry, how they might be similar or different than in others. And I think it adds kind of a really interesting perspective to, uh, to the conversation here and, and to the work at large.
0: Being able to target more effectively is really something that we all know we need to do, but it, it proves to be a little bit difficult when we get into a regulated industry like ourselves, right? Because of all the HIPAA considerations. And recently we got to talk at a conference, and we, we started up this conversation about uh, the topic I think we're going to talk about today, which is the role of data and particularly de-identified data within hospitals and health systems as they begin their marketing. You know, when we first started talking about that, you, you told me a little bit about the history of that. I'd love for you to share that with our audience today.
3: So sure, I, I love this story. It is both interesting and also insightful in terms of an understanding of how we got to the world we live in today where de-identified data as opposed to identified data is used throughout the healthcare system. And if you go back to the mid-90s, there's a a well-known story, at least well-known if you're interested in privacy and healthcare privacy. In the mid-90s, the governor of Massachusetts, William Weld is his name, was getting ready to deliver the commencement speech speech at Bentley College one sunny afternoon. And he stepped up to the podium and as he was about to start, he collapsed, was taken to the hospital. And while he was okay, what's really interesting about this is that sometime later, separately and independently, the state of Massachusetts decided to release, quote, anonymized health data on hospitals and patients. And the idea was that this informs the greater good. We're going to release data. We're going to make it available for academics and researchers to try and learn, to study diseases, to improve care and improve outcomes. And at the time, MIT graduate student in computer science, her name is Latanya Sweeney, now a Harvard professor, uh, was able to purchase for $20 voter registration data from the county of Cambridge and link within a matter of minutes these two data sets together and was able to identify all of the health records from William Weld, from the governor. And because she was theatrical in nature, she decided to print out a copy and send it to his home.
0: Oh, my goodness.
3: (laughs) And this was really the lightning rod, the impetus, if you will, for what eventually became the de-identification standard under HIPAA, as we know it today, which really enables the sharing of data beyond the walls of a covered entity, a health system, a pharmacy, an insurer, and other types of companies that, that collect healthcare data The ability to share this is really governed by HIPAA. And so as we know it today, this is really kind of the origin of of what kicked that off.
0: Recently, in the news, there's a lot of conversation about data and data privacy, and in healthcare, we have that added level of HIPAA as sort of a security around the level of data that we can share. I mean, I think this is top of mind to people. So, when we say de-identified data, can you give me, in in sort of in a high level, what is being uh, stripped of that data to make to make it
3: classified as
0: de-identified?
3: There's actually a couple of different ways to think about this. One is known as the technical term safe harbor, where there's 18 identifiers, personal identifiers that are contained in data that all of them need to be removed uh, under safe harbor. And if you do this, you can share data. The, the problem with this is, at least for practical use, is that by stripping off a lot of the information it kind of renders the data to be less valuable than you'd like it to be. And so the the provision under HIPAA that is commonly used is known as expert determination. And basically, what it it says is that you can have an expert statistician in this field essentially review the data that you're working with, anything that you could reasonably combine it with, right? We've seen from Latanya Sweeney, combining data can enable re-identification. Review what you can reasonably combine it with at a high level, that an expert statistician would review this, and if they can reasonably conclude that the risk of re-identification of an individual is low, then this is basically okay. And that statistician would create a report. Uh, we have one of these at CrossX. We actually have multiple of these uh, known as a HIPAA certification, and it basically means that we've had experts review the process, the methodology, the data. How do we take it? How do we link it? How do we analyze it? What do we do with it? And this complies with the law as it's written today—that's
0: actually a really nuanced but important designation, there, right? When you think about that, you know. And as a digital marketer and a person who does digital marketing, I know the importance of being able to understand who your customer is. And I've been implementing solutions where we do very advanced targeting. When when you get in the world of using de-identified data, it sounds to me like in certain aspects, you're you're kind of constricting the the
3: capability that a marketer today. Can use that data certainly versus other industries. It is, and and I would actually add to that that HIPAA is not the only, I would say, privacy um, governing body when it comes to marketers wanting to deliver targeted advertising to customers. Take it back to as we were as we were talking about, and as you're you know, kind of people listening are are wanting to hear more about marketing by health system hospital marketers today. Part of that goal and the remit is to make sure that every dollar gets stretched as efficiently and as far as possible. And so we're seeing today a ton of activity in terms of, as you said, targeted advertising that historically might have been done through age and gender, demographics, maybe geography type of targeting. There's now all types of other capabilities. We have one of these basically known as, as look-alike modeling. But in terms of the privacy element of it, HIPAA is one, but there are governing bodies, including the NAI, um, which just produced, I don't know if you're familiar, but just produced a new code for 2020, and basically is a network of primarily digital advertising bodies, advertising entities who are members. And NAI publishes a code of what is permissible versus not from a privacy standpoint one of the things, in fact, that they say is that the use of actual healthcare data to target ads is not permitted. And so it's a really interesting dynamic where you have multiple rules. Some are laws, some are not. And at least in the ecosystem where we sit, working with many digital companies, including media companies and publishers and so on, to have our data be made available for marketers such as yourself to use, really they're concerned about being compliant with everything.
0: And, you know, and we hear about the GDPR as well, you know, when it comes to privacy and, and letting people manage their own personal data and allowing them to opt in and opt out. I mean, what we're painting here is is a pretty bleak picture of a digital marketer in our space, in our industry, right, to, to be able to be effective with their targeting. Yet, you found... In your experience, and that's a little bit different, right?
3: There's a lot of value around having access to this data. I guess you're right. It sounds somewhat bleak, but I think what's important to note, at least if we think about targeting, how do I deliver a targeted message to a consumer that's going to be both relevant and privacy safe? There are ways to do this by taking consumer data and then using the consumer data to target, not all that different than what's done traditionally. We happen to learn which consumer data elements are most relevant by using healthcare data to tell us that. And this is a common tactic. There are others that do this as well. But it's important to note that there are privacy-safe ways to deliver messages. And then there are those that are not. Um, As I said, NAI says you cannot use actual healthcare data on an individual to serve them an ad. If we go beyond that, though, there are other tremendous uses of de-identified healthcare data for marketers. And in particular, we look at this, and a lot of what we do is measurement. How do I know if my marketing campaign is successful? How do I know if it is driving visits to to my physicians? How do I know if it's driving the proper outcomes and procedures and and eventually tying down to the ultimate ROI? And so the notion of using de-identified healthcare data linked to Digital media data in a HIPAA compliant and privacy safe way is just one of many pieces of value and ways that you can, you can use this type of information to really inform what you're doing as a marketer. But I think the idea of using longitudinal data, uh, so go beyond just what a health system would have within their own EHR and look at other sorts, and other types of data, from other sources where you can compare bind this together, and then combine with individuals who have actually seen ads. There's a lot of value in doing this and kind of the the very high level of an approach that we take when it comes to measuring.
0: When I use healthcare CRMs, a lot of times they they build these propensity models. They say people with these kinds of characteristics through their data have a propensity to be a better target for this particular kind
3: of marketing. Is this kind of what you're getting at, is using, building out these larger data models so I'm getting at that exactly for targeting. And so there's the concept of that for targeting because of privacy laws, you really are left to build propensity models uh, in order to do this in a safe way. When it comes to measurement of campaigns, no, we use actual de-identified data in order to measure, to say, hey, somebody saw my ad on, on WebMD and did they eventually come in and see one of my my physicians for this particular service line. And also adding in, knowing were they already were they relevant? Were they already diagnosed? Have they seen one of my, my, my physicians previously? And so on. And so you basically draw the distinction use of modeling techniques to target at an individual level versus use of actual healthcare data for measurement, and measurement would be done on groups. It sounds simple as the way you describe it,
0: but Uh, Behind the scenes, it sounds pretty complex. I mean, knowing that there's all these different data sources and some of the data is like, like you mentioned, like WebMD on non-owned platforms. And yet, you know, how they lead into uh, things that like on your own website or even becoming a patient that is data that's maybe pulled from your EMR behind the scenes, it's probably a pretty complex solution.
3: That is true. That's definitely true. Over time, if, if you think about what what we're talking about here, requires a number of things, right? That are not easy to do and not easy to do on your own. Number one, it requires a massive amount of healthcare data. You may have data within an EMR system, but what about all the data, the healthcare data that you're missing that's not in that system today? What if someone is filling prescriptions and is diagnosed and you don't have this information? And what if they, they come in and they seek care? And then they leave and they go somewhere else. They go to the the hospital down the block or to another provider and so on. And what are you not seeing without that full picture? And so one of the things we've done that's taken a very long time to do, but we've built up a network of many, many different, what we call data suppliers, sources of actual healthcare data, where we can combine this together and in total actually have healthcare data on 300 million people in the US. Again, it's combining from EMR data sources, from claims data sources, and so on. And that's on the healthcare side. And to your point, Chris, there's also a significant investment that's been made in tools to be able to identify people who have been exposed to ads. And and I draw the distinction between the exposure and the click, right? And the difference between a lead and someone who's been exposed and kind of a generally known principle uh, certainly outside of healthcare at least is the idea that you know exposure to advertising has an impact even if you don't click if you don't take an action eventually if you see it enough you know there is value in getting in getting that person or some portion of that audience who's, who's just been exposed to your ad they will eventually take an action and in this case that means really eventually coming in seeking care seeing your physicians and so the exercise yes it's complex behind the scenes but simple on the front end to use and to gain value is taking these exposed audiences linking to this massive healthcare data set, doing this in a way that complies with HIPAA, and then really providing through a platform different types of insights on where someone is in the journey, what's the impact that 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 marketing campaign has had, and really tying it directly uh, to to that investment, to that activity.
0: I think that a lot of us as um, marketers within a health system, that we're, we're, we are trying to build those data systems and those data models to do that, right? But a lot of times when we start down this path, we we sometimes get paraly- paralyzed right up front with the fact that there's all these independent data sets, so to speak, right? You got all your Facebook data, you got this data, et cetera. And you may implement a CRM that can kind of subsume that data and, and draw some parallels behind it. Are there any suggestions that you can you can help them with to to start to maybe map out all where all that data
3: may lie and and what the potential might be? So I think the beauty actually is it's, it's again com- as you said complex behind the scenes but simple on the surface. Yes, there is data that exists. You're running campaigns on Facebook and Google, and now a lot of programmatic and other types of media companies as well. You don't have to actually worry about yourselves as a marketer uh, or someone working at an agency, working with marketers, you don't have to worry about being responsible for going and getting that and so on, that we have a system in place that we can basically, uh, through tagging, one simple process allows you to capture all of this type of data. And then another process is being able to link all of that to this large um, set of, of healthcare data. So all of the media data, it's actually not that complicated in so much as Kind of figured out already how to how to capture this, and then how to link it all and gain value out of it.
0: Now we're becoming more and more increasingly a data driven environment, right, or a data driven society, because now we're introducing more and more Internet of Things. There's wearables. There's everything we do. I don't. I can't remember the last time I actually used cash to pay for something. Right. I can't either. (laughs) All my TV viewing is now online, and these are. Entirely other data pools, you know that that are also probably part of now the consideration that we're looking at. So as people start to think about like all of this other data sets that are out there, do you think that that's that poses uh, additional
3: challenges? Or it's a it's a great question. I think it comes down to first understanding as a marketer what you're trying to learn, right? What you're trying to do. You're right. You talk about Internet of Things and all of this other data, and, and you're not using cash anymore. You're using your credit card. And so there is a massive amount of data. But at the end of the day, what do you want to learn? And if the goal of marketing measurement, at least, is to understand investments that you're making, are those working for you? And how can I improve and do things better? Then really the, the thought is focus on those things. And, and, and I do think that um, the data exists now and can be leveraged for almost anything you would do in the marketing that would you know, be part of a marketing toolkit, uh, whether it's display advertising, connected TV. I like to say, um, and I've cut the cord myself, and I have two kids, so I like to say uh, I've cut three cords in my life, two umbilical and, and one cable. <laughs> but you have all this data. so connected TV and addressable TV. And so if you focus on that, if you focus on the investments being made and where the dollars are going, that that would kind of dictate for you as a marketer. What do I need to be concerned about? And can I capture that data? And then can I can I learn something about what's going on?
0: That's what it really boils down to, right? It's just, I, I always say just because you can measure it doesn't mean you should. You want to measure the things that actually have the highest value and kind of taking inventory of that. I, I don't see this... Challenge of data and having de-identified data is going away. I actually see it as becoming more and more complex. And at one end, you got the introduction of no, more and more data sets, so to speak, because it, we're going to be doing having more and more devices and connecting more and more to the internet. Yet on the other hand, I see this tension with the fact that the more we get connected, the more that the consumer themselves. Uh, want to make sure they're ensuring their privacy with all of this data.
3: Do you see that tension playing out in the future state? So it's playing out right now, right? We've seen not just GDPR, but in the U.S., the California Act, CCPA. And as of last count, there's about 30 different states that have privacy legislation under consideration. And the general theme of this is really – what rights are we giving people, are we giving consumers to know what's being done with their data, what's being collected, do they have opt-in or opt-out rights, and so on. And, and, and yes, this is a big topic now. Um, it is likely going to continue to increase. And another major discussion is, are we going to end up with 50 different state laws or one federal law? And really still playing out before our eyes right now and the implications of where we net out will definitely have implications on our industry in terms of what digital data can we use. Do we need opt-in consent? Do we not? How do you protect this? And so on. And and so a lot still to come. Um, But I think, yes, in the foreseeable future, for sure, um, we will continue to see a lot of news, and a lot of headlines around privacy legislation in general, and this battle of state versus federal legislation. And Kind of interesting to watch and certainly some type of implication on the industry uh, that, that we're in, if, if nothing else.
0: And I've even heard some uh discussions i've seen read some blog posts about this could be potentially like a uh, a new cash industry for for individuals where they say hey look we'll we'll offer up our data and you can use your data all you want for a cost right and individuals can
3: profit from that how do you feel about that definitely this is a, a topic you're reading more about and even some companies being formed to kind of try and profit on on something like this Right. And one of the interesting uh, ideas, though, is when you consider the legislation that's actually before uh, Congress and before state uh, legislators is, will any of these laws fundamentally change HIPAA? And the expectation, at least that, that we have, is that it, it won't. Um, you're seeing these laws kind of sit side by side, most likely. It's kind of an interesting idea is who owns healthcare data? And the way that the law is written today is that once data has been de-identified thanks to Latanya Sweeney and Governor William Weld, it's not your data anymore. And it's a really important hmm. point to understand, at least the world we live in today. If that changes, there would be implications for sure, not just on our industry, but on pretty much all of healthcare, the way that de-identified data is used today to do so many things. But generally speaking, the, the expectation, certainly, that we would have... Is that kind of legislation under consideration today wouldn't have a materially material impact on, on HIPAA and really therefore wouldn't have a materially impact on kind of the ability of a person to profit, as you said, fundamentally.
0: It all comes back to de-identified data, doesn't it? Sure it sure does. We come full circle. It sure does. <laughs> Well, this has been a great conversation, Jeremy. I, I appreciate us, though, going deep into this because it certainly is, has a profound impact on what we're doing today. Um, if people listening in want to learn a little bit more about you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you online?
3: I think, really, people can just go to com to the website, um, and, and you know they can reach out to us that way. Certainly, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just Jeremy Mittler, um, and, and those are probably the best ways to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you have some good resources on on your website, CrossX.com. So we encourage people to kind of jump out there and learn a little bit more about that. Jeremy, thank you so much for your insights. Really, really interesting. Uh, Again, appreciate you going deep and getting a little nerdy with us on this. Um,
3: Thanks for having me, Chris. I I, I really enjoyed it.
1: At Healthgrades, Better Health gets a head start. They help millions of consumers each month to find and schedule appointments with their provider of choice. With their scheduling solutions and advanced analytics applications, they partner with more than 500 hospitals across the country to cultivate new patient relationships, improve patient access, and build customer loyalty. To learn more, visit them online at healthgrades.com. That is healthgrades.com.
2: All right. As we get ready to kind of wrap the show up, that was an excellent uh, interview. Thanks to Jeremy, Chris. Thanks for taking the time to get that interview. This has been interesting. We hear a lot about de-identified data and the importance of it. So it's kind of, I don't know if it's helped me or not, but it has uh, given me
0: additional (laughs) things to think about for sure. It's opened our eyes at least, right? That's right. (laughs) And gave you a reason not to exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Physical activity
2: the death of you. Both privacy (laughs) and may just literally be the death of you. So there you go. There's no upside. Before we do recommendations, quick plug for a couple of places we're going to be. You're going to be just in the aforementioned Chicago, the Windy City for the Strategic Marketing for Healthcare Conference, July 30th through August 1st, which is just weeks away at this point, uh, a little over a month, I guess.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be talking about the how to map your digital to the customer journey. And we're going to talk about various different iterations of the customer journey and how digital can be used to enable and optimize that. So it should be an interesting conversation. Looking forward to whoever's going to be there, stop by, make sure you say hello. Um, I'll make sure to do a report out of that after the conference. And then a few weeks after that read, well, maybe a little over a month after that, there's going to be something happening in Nashville that you're going to be at.
2: The ShishMed Connections 2019. So everybody, a lot of folks that we all know, obviously go to the annual ShishMed conference. It's a, a, a long staple in the industry. September 8th through the 12th. So right after kind of the Labor Day break there uh, in Nashville uh, should be a great,
0: great place to be that time of year and certainly a great conference. Absolutely. And then another month and a few weeks later, we're going to be at the 2019 Mayo Clinic Social Media Network Annual Conference down in Rochester, Minnesota, or for you up in Rochester, Minnesota That's right. at the Mayo Clinic. We're going to be there in many different ways. You're going to be doing a workshop. uh, I'm going to be presenting and we're both we're going to be recording a podcast live in front of the audience while everyone's eating lunch. That's right. Hopefully there won't
2: be too much background noise. No, I'm just kidding. But you'll hear all the, like the tea glasses and stuff like rattling around. The ambient noise. <laughs> you can go to socialmedia.mayoclinic.org. Uh, it's also in the show notes. But be sure to sign up for that. That's always always a great time. Uh, Dr. Brian Vardabedian will be there, host of the exam room, uh, and many many others. Uh, and then finally, uh, the first week of November, November fourth through the sixth, down in Orlando is the uh, annual healthcare internet conference. So everybody loves HCIC. That's uh, always one in the fall that we see a lot of folks at and uh, enjoy attending. That'd be a good time to be in Orlando. And this
0: time, Reed, I'm going to try to get you out to a restaurant to eat some alligator. Ooh, alligator. Is it like real alligator? Well, I, I don't think it's like vegan tofu alligator. <laughs> or
2: Yeah, I was going to make a funny joke there, but I'll, I'll let that one go. So anyway, let us know if you're going to be at any of these. We'd love to connect in person, maybe even uh, record a quick interview for the show. So if you have know of somebody that should be on here, know a topic we should cover, let us know that as well. And then uh, a couple of quick
0: recommendations uh, for this week. Uh, what do you have? Reed? I'm going to make a recommendation based on the change in the weather here in Minnesota. Now that we thawed out and it's spring going into summer here. One of the things that I always love about this time of the year is... Farmer's markets. Oh, there you go. Every Saturday, there's a variety of farmer markets that um, open up across uh, the Twin Cities. Um, we live in a ver- in an area where there's, there's a lot of farmers and a lot of agriculture. I always love to go to the farmer's market. My wife and I have already ridden our bikes on Saturdays to get up to, to walk around and check out what's new. You know, pick up some radishes, pick up some fresh veggies, pick up some fresh cut flowers. It's just a farmer's market. It's great. You give back to your community. You're paying the farmers directly. And it's just a fun event, too, right? There's a lot of people there. So that's what I'm going to recommend today, going to a farmer's market.
2: Very, very nice. I am going to recommend a piece of design software. There, there's those out there that obviously are diehard, Photoshop or AI, you know, the Adobe products and things like that. There are some of us out there that don't use it enough to, to warrant the cost, whether it's the subscription cost, the one-time cost, etc. Want well, something a little bit easier to use, uh, but still has some of the more robust features. So I'm recommending Pixelmator Pro. I've used Pixelmator in the past. Pixelmator Pro is worth uh, the extra money. I don't remember how much it is, but you can download it from the App Store. But what's cool about it is when you when you open it up, it's a Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator kind of family of, of products, if you kind of think about that kind of a tool for those of us that, that spend a lot of time in social and content creation, this is really great because, you know, when you open up a new document, it actually gives you a bunch of presets, right? So if you think about like Word or, or something like that, it's going to give you the 8 by 10 or maybe stationary size A4, you know, things like that that you can choose from. Mm-hmm. This has all of that, but also has things like web social. And so in social, if you click on that little button, it has all the preset canvases for Facebook profile images, Twitter covers, Twitter images, Instagram, you know, YouTube channel headers. So you always have people saying like, Hey, what, what's the right size for a Facebook cover image and things? Well, you have that all built into this tool. Uh, there's even, you know, film and video so if you think about, you know, if you're doing something uh, that's going to go on a large screen, maybe it's a graphic or something like that. They have everything from, you have know, the 720 HD up to the cinema 4K. Again, preset templates or canvases, I should say, not really templates. Uh, and then even iconography. So iPhone apps, uh, they have all those kind of preset in here, the Mac app icons, things like that that you can just pick and have. You know, that is your starting point instead of trying to wonder, like, how big do I need to make this and that kind of thing. And then their export settings are great. You know, you can click to export to web. And, you know, it just gives you, I guess, an easier path, you know, to create some of that stuff if it's something you don't do on a regular basis. So, anyway, Pixelmator
0: Pro. Very cool. I'm going to go check that out for sure.
2: Well, awesome. Well, good uh, good recording and love to hear from you again. Uh, Touchpoint.health is the website. Uh, We certainly appreciate all the support. Rate, review, subscribe. Let us know if you're going to be at a conference. Let us hear from you online. Uh, We've been getting great uh, responses even through the website and even reviews on iTunes. So all that is much appreciated. And we um, look forward to connecting this fall. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.